Morning, church. Good to see you. Yeah, grade six to eight, you guys are headed out. That's awesome. Hey, and just while they're heading out, uh, Sarah, who opened our service, you're here for Sarah, you know, energetic Sarah doing the announcements, you know who I'm talking about. Um, uh, so she and her husband have, have actually been teaching our catechism class uh, for junior highs over the last uh, several months, well, since we started it. And uh, just sadly, sadly, Chad and Sarah are moving to Red Deer uh, so that was Sarah's last Sunday doing announcements for us. I tried to plead with her to drive back from Red Deer every few weeks and do that for us, but uh, she's not really up for that. So uh, we're sorry to be losing this uh, stellar young couple to our church. Um, anyways, a couple of other things before, um, before we get into this. Uh, it is Communion Sunday, and so we will be uh, observing the Lord's table after the message this morning. And, and so especially for those who are watching at home right now on the live stream, be sure to have bread or cracker and juice and, or wine uh, ready for our time with the Lord around the Lord's table at the end of the service. And uh, we are starting a new series uh, this morning uh, called Means of Grace, and uh, this is going to carry us through uh, the summer. And I wanted to let you know that because uh, we, we, uh, we are going to be back to Revelation. We just like parked that until September, so Lord willing, we'll be back to that. We have another series, if you haven't been around here for a while, uh, we have another series uh, in the book of Acts that we parked in order to do Revelation, and so we got a couple of like open-ended series there. We plan a lot of stuff way in advance, and so um, Lord willing, back to Revelation in September, get through that in the next ministry year, and then we'll come back to Acts in September 2023, so you know, mark your calendars, just, uh, just so you know when you have to be here uh, for all of that. But we are excited to be in this new series for the next 10 weeks. And, um, and, and just a reminder, at hbc.info, in case you're new to the church, you don't really realize all of this, if you go to hbc.info, that's our micro site, if you go there, you're going to see links uh, that are going to help you with this message this morning. The sermon notes are there, every quote that I use is going to be there, uh, there's, gonna, there's links to several articles on this topic of means of grace, if you want to chase down this topic a little bit more and read a little bit more about it. Um, there's a book that I'm going to be quoting. The link to Amazon in that book is there as well. So take advantage of that. If you, if you have a physical Bible in your hand, that's awesome. We would encourage that, of course. But if you're using a phone or tablet along with that, there's a link there to the Scripture as well. And so Galatians 1 to 3 will be in front of you as you, um, as you work through the message, as we work through the message here uh, today. Sound good? Does that whole plan for the summer, Means of Grace, that series sound good to you? It's the only plan I have, so I hope it sounds good to you. Like, I don't have another plan, so that's the one we're going with. And as we get into this, I, I just want I, I had coffee um, this past week or a week ago with uh, one of the members of our church who's an engineer with, uh, I said Ontario Hydro, but it's actually Hydro One. I got corrected after the first series uh, ser service. So he's with Hydro One. He's an engineer. And I asked him, because I'm not an engineer, obviously, I'm more of a history, humanities, theology kind of guy, not really an engineering, math type guy. So I asked him, over coffee at Starbucks, what, what, just explain to me what you do. And I tried my best to understand, at least I stared at him and nodded several times. Uh, so he, he, he at least understood that I understood uh, what he was saying. But in essence, here's what he does. He it's not that hard. He monitors the flow of, of electricity through the provincial power grid. That's what you're seeing on the map right there. And he's watching for and anticipating any issues that would compromise the delivery of electricity to our communities. 
And, and so what, and I vetted that with him after I wrote it, I sent it to him and I said, is this right? And he said, yes, that's right. So I was listening. But in Ontario, uh, the, the power is generated uh, at one of our generating stations. This one pictured is the Bruce nuclear plant on Lake Huron. And then it, it moves from those generating stations through uh, what you see in the countryside, the massive transmission lines, and then to local poles uh, in, in any given community, and then to transformers in our neighborhoods. Uh, those are the boxes, especially in neighborhoods where you have electricity below ground and into our homes and businesses. And those towers and poles and transformers, this is what's important for us to understand, is these towers, poles, and transformers are not the electricity itself, but they are conduits of the electricity. Everybody still with me? All the science people said yes. All the people into poetry have no idea what I'm talking about. So they're the conduits of the power. They're not the power themselves. And, and they are, and here's a very important word. This is an alert to a very important word I'm going to say here for this series. They are the means. They are the means by which we receive the electricity. Now, again, that's a wonderful science lesson. That's, that's just valuable on, on its own. But it's also a picture in how, into how our relationship with God actually works. And as Christians, and even for those who are not Christians, as they look at the Christian life and try to understand this relationship that we have with Christ, there can be so much confusion over the nature of the Christian life and how, especially how a person is saved. And what I need to understand as I think about how a person is actually saved, again, this is foundational for this entire series. This, this statement becomes so critical. We're going to look at every phrase of this in this message. My standing with God is based entirely on His grace. But grace is easily compromised by distortions of the gospel, and thus I feel the need to earn God's favor rather than receiving His grace by faith alone in the power of the Spirit and not of the flesh. Now that statement, again, is critical to us understanding everything else we're going to hear in this series. And in terms of the power grid, to come back to the opening illustration, it's like being fixated when we distort the gospel. It's like being fixated on the transmission towers and the power lines and the transformer boxes themselves and thinking that it is these conduits themselves that power our homes. But we'd be wrong for thinking so. The conduits are important delivery methods only. And it's the same with the grace of God. And that's what this series about is about. The means of grace. All of the different ways that God dispenses His grace to us. We want to understand what the means of grace are. We want to understand what they are not. And so we're going to start by breaking down this statement that I read as we look at Galatians 1 to 3, yes, we're going to do three chapters of Galatians this morning. We're going to work through it, obviously not every single verse in Galatians 1 to 3, but we're going to pop into some highlights, and it's going to help us understand the statement that we've made. And then nine messages, nine messages throughout the summer, all the way to Labor Day weekend that are going to help us to understand these means of grace in our lives. Five different preachers are going to come and bring you what God has given to them for us in this series all the way again to Labor Day weekend. So first, let's start with this. My standing with God is based entirely on His grace. Now, in the greeting of the letter, Paul says, notice here, look in your Bibles, this is Galatians 1, 3 to 5. 
He says, grace to you, and this is the opening of a letter, so it's, it's a greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now that he gives in those few verses to start this letter, he gives a little synopsis of what the gospel message really is, and he starts it out by pointing to grace. He says in verse 3, grace to you. And if you were to fast forward all the way to the end of the letter in chapter 6, verse 18, he caps it off with a very similar greeting. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers, amen. And he ends the letter. And so what we have in this letter to the Galatians is he starts with grace, he ends with grace, he's bracketed the entire letter with the grace of God. And he does that because that's the central topic. The gospel of grace is the central topic in this letter. And it's why I chose Galatians for this particular message. Because we cannot discuss the means of grace, the conduits by which God delivers grace into our lives. We cannot discuss the conduits until we understand grace itself. So a basic definition, one that we've used many, many times here, it's very simple, helps us understand what grace is, not original to me by any means. Grace is God's undeserved and unearned favor. Grace is God's undeserved and unearned favor. We're going we're gonna to look at that in, in much more detail. We're going to understand that better, that definition of grace better, if we also understand what Phil Yancey said in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, which was such a formative book in my own life with respect to understanding the grace of God. Here's what Yancey said. God loves people because of who God is, not because of who we are. God loves you and me because of who he is, not because of who we are, not because we've done something to earn his love or to capture his attention. And we would have no opportunity whatsoever to have any standing before God if it had to be on the basis of our own righteousness. Precisely because, as Paul states in that greeting, God, Christ, had to give himself for our sins, or sinners. That sin has separated us from God. And the implication is that we could not do that for ourselves. We could not deal with our own sins before God. Jen, Jen Pollock-Michel, who was here um, a month or two ago for the leadership series, and she has uh, several wonderful books. In one of those books, she said, the only thing we need in our life with God is neediness. The only thing we need with respect to our relationship to God, the only thing we need is neediness. We just need to come with the need. And when we come with that need, that's the only means by which we can be, to come back to what Paul says in Galatians 1, that's the only way we can be delivered from this present evil age. We're sinners. We live in a sinful world. Everything in this world wars against us having a relationship with our God. The sin that we have chosen and committed has created a chasm between us and God. And there's nothing we can do to bridge that chasm. We need God to build the bridge. We need God to be the bridge. 
and he does so according to his grace. It is undeserved by us. There's no way we can earn it. And so when we talk about the means of grace, it's absolutely essential throughout the summer with every message we're going to hear, it's absolutely essential that we remember that these means are not earning us anything in and of themselves. It's what's going through those means that matters. And so my standing with God, it's the first thing we look at here, my standing with God is based entirely on His grace, but grace is easily compromised by distortions of the gospel. The clarity, of the, of the, the clarity and simplicity of the gospel message was being compromised quite quickly following the inauguration of the church. And so we know the sequence of events. Christ came, spent approximately three years doing ministry. Um, he was crucified. He was, he, he was raised from the dead. He spent time uh, in his post-resurrection state, pre-ascension, meeting with the disciples. But then there was that moment where he was going to ascend to the Father, and he commissioned the apostles, and he commissioned the church, and he said, the church is going to be inaugurated. That was the day of Pentecost. You need to stay in Jerusalem. Holy Spirit's going to come. That happened. Jesus ascended. The Holy Spirit came. Church was empowered, went out, preached the gospel. People start coming to Jesus. They're being baptized. The church is growing and flourishing. And very shortly thereafter, I mean, this isn't a 21st century problem. Very shortly thereafter, the gospel message, the simplicity and clarity of the gospel message started to be distorted. So we didn't have to wait very long for that. And so Paul's writing this letter. This is actually a, a very early letter of Paul's dealing with this very issue. He's having to defend the gospel and he's having to defend his apostleship, in fact, which was his qualification to speak to this. I can bring clarity about the gospel. My letter's authoritative because I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He wants to bring the church back to the clarity that was being distorted by false teaching. And he shares his concern in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1. And he writes this in verses 6 and 7. He says, and he knew these people. He's writing to the church in Galatia. He's, he knows them. He says, I'm astonished. I'm surprised. I'm shocked at what I hear is going on in the churches. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, Christ, who called you in the grace of Christ. You're saved by grace. What's going on in Galatia? And instead, you're turning to a different gospel. And then he says, not that there is another gospel. There isn't. Rhetorical. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And so the whole purpose for the letter of the, of, to, the, to the Galatians was, was this battle that they were having in Galatia. This is a region in central Turkey today, Asia Minor. It was happening in many churches. It was widespread, in fact, in the Mediterranean world in the first century. It's an issue in all churches. Even today, we battle with this. And perhaps this came as a result of Christianity being born out of Judaism. And within Judaism, there was a, a strict legalism that had a root, a misunderstanding of the law of Moses. So maybe it's that. Maybe it's Maybe it's simply this. Maybe it's, it's simply this human tendency, this hard wiring we have to want to earn what we have. We want to earn it. We want to know that we've worked for something and look what I did. Look at, look at this. Or, or 
It's that we think we deserve everything that we have. And we deserve more. I read a series of tweets by a man, this is sad for me, but a series of tweets by a man who in the early days of our church uh, led worship here. He wasn't on staff, but on occasion he would lead worship at Harvest, and he found a career in music. He moved to the States, and he represented Christ for many years, until more recently he renounced his faith and has become an advocate for deconversion. He posts reflections online that are a harsh critique of Christianity, of the church, of the Word of God, the gospel. And in the recent post that I saw just a few days ago, he took on this idea of humanity being undeserving, which for us is foundational to an understanding of the gospel. Because if we don't understand that we're undeserving, if we don't understand that we're sinners, then there's no need of the gospel. So he's challenging this notion that we are undeserving as human beings. He believes instead that we do deserve good things. We do deserve good things. We, we deserve everything good that comes our way, and we deserve more, and we should be encouraging one another to pursue those good things. But that is a repudiation of the gospel. It's a repudiation of a basic understanding of who we are before God. And by the way, he'd be fine with that. He wouldn't have any argument with anything that I'm saying right now because he has repudiated the gospel quite publicly. It's phrasing he would use and be comfortable with. But to say this, to say that we deserve anything good from God is to ignore the offense created by our sin. To believe that we are deserving is to casually set aside the fact that God is holy. In our studies of the book of Revelation, we have learned that the hymn of heaven is holy, holy, holy. That's who our God is. But if we're deserving of something, then that can't possibly be true. But that is the highest description of God. To believe this is to further spurn His grace. But more than that, it is to deny that God's intention for us, for humanity, was and is to give us good gifts. That's Luke 11. Jesus said so. The Father desires to give good gifts to His children. He wants to do this as a gift. Not that we deserve those gifts, but that He freely gives them without cost. If we deserved them and God gave them to us, that wouldn't be grace. We deserve them. He's just giving us what we're due. And so that's the challenge that's before us. To say that we deserve anything is to misunderstand and misrepresent grace, the very foundation of our hope and salvation. It is to put humanity, this is the sad part, it puts humanity at the center rather than God at the center, rather than Christ at the center, rather than His gospel being our hope. It would be that we're deserving. Martin Luther knew a thing or two about grace. He's the reformer, 16th century reformer. He was trained in Catholicism as a monk, but he never found salvation in the church. 
began to read the Gospels for himself, reading the book of Romans, and his life was transformed in understanding the Gospel, understanding grace. And he was one of the great reformers. And so he understood that the Catholic Church had been teaching Gospel plus, Gospel plus. Believe this, but also do all these other things. And so Martin Luther, reflecting on the book of Galatians, he wrote this in his commentary, where the righteousness of the law rules, the righteousness of grace cannot. And again, where the righteousness of grace reigns, the righteousness of the law cannot. One of them must always give way to the other. It cannot be both faith and works, to put it another way. Either salvation is a gift of God or it is earned through our efforts. It cannot be both of those things. It's a choice between one and the other. It cannot be a combo of those two things. It can't be faith plus works. Because to believe that, again, back to Luther, it would be as if to say, Christ is a good workman and has indeed started the building, but he has not finished it. And for this, we need our own moral and religious works. Now for Galatians and other first century believers, this was about adherence to the Mosaic law. They were looking back on the Old Testament and they were seeing the, the, the legal requirements of obeying the law, the Old Testament law, were to be added to the gospel. Yeah, that's great that you believe the message of Christ. It's great that you believe the gospel. It's great that you consider yourself a Christian. But now let's go back to the law. You still need to live out all of these things. Paul saying no. Grace alone. And for us, it might look like church involvement, being faithful in attendance, being a member, coming to worship. It will look like being a, a good person or having a strong moral center, or it, or it looks like giving an offering or, or, or finding a place of service or, or, or reading the word and, and having a time of prayer every morning. that we take these things and we add them to the gospel in order to gain God's favor. And when we think this way, and those are good things, by the way, but when we think this way, that's a distortion of the gospel. If we believe that that's the thing that's saving us. Again, Luther said, the doctrine of grace can by no means stand with the doctrine of the law or works. The one must simply be refused and abolished, and the other confirmed and established. The gospel of grace must be confirmed and established in our life and ministries. And so grace is easily compromised by distortions of the gospel. And when the gospel is distorted, thus, I feel the need I feel the need to earn God's favor. And Paul deals with this very issue, and starting in chapter 1, verse 11, through uh, chapter 2, verse 14, he's dealing with that, and he says in verse 11 of chapter 1, for I would have you know, brothers and sisters, I would have you know that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. It's not this other gospel that you're hearing. And then he goes on to describe some incidents that had happened over the past few years. 
He starts with his own story of believing on the road to Damascus, his conversion story, and how when he wanted to go and visit the apostles in Jerusalem and spend some time with them, that they were so fearful because he had so violently persecuted the church. Then he talked about 15 years later, there was this Jerusalem council. There was a problem in some of the churches where there were some who were believing, yes, you can be saved by faith, but then you also need to you know, abstain from certain activities. And the Jerusalem council got together to talk about that. And then he fronts Peter. He tells the story of fronting Peter over a situation in Antioch. And he says, Peter acted as a hypocrite in that situation. You can read all of that later, but what they all have in common is a distortion of the gospel that added to the simple message of salvation by grace alone. They added in the need by one work or another, the need to earn God's favor. And again, this is, this is how we're hardwired to think as human beings. This is the way we think. Even when it when a gift is given to us, if we receive a gift from someone, if you receive a gift from someone today, you're going to feel some kind of obligation to give a gift back. Beyond that, if there's any kind of gift exchanging going on, the thing we're looking for is, were the two gifts of equal value? Because then if we're the person who gave the cheaper gift... We're going to feel pretty lousy about ourselves because the other person gave a gift that was disproportionate to the one that we gave him because we're always thinking in terms of reciprocity. We have to keep it all equal. If there's any parents here who have multiple children and you know giving gifts to your children, you know they're watching what you give to their brothers or sisters. They're watching because they want to make sure it's equal. This is why years and years ago, Cheryl and I gave up giving gifts to our children. We just give cash. It's always the same amount and not accounting for inflation because this really is going to be bad for Luke because he's born at the back end of the year this year. So inflation's going up. His money is not going to be worth as much as what we gave to the siblings this spring. But that's not my fault. That's just, that's just economic conditions. I can't do anything about that. At face value, the two gifts look exactly the same. It's just money. Because we think this way. We think in terms of reciprocity. We struggle. We struggle so much to understand grace. And Paul made it super clear. And to forgive me for quoting another Paul letter while we're studying this one, but in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he just said it so clearly. Uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith. I mean, I read this first. We could just end the sermon right here. It's just so clear. That's the way it goes. I'm not going to end the sermon right here because I got more to say, but for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Can't do anything to earn it. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that, what? No one can boast. There's no opportunity for any of us to have any pride over anything that we have from God, because it's entirely 100% a gift from Him. And so we need to end all sense that we can do anything to earn our salvation and instead gain an understanding that the works that we do accomplish things in our lives that are post-salvation enhancements, enhancements of or growth in or nurturing of our relationship with Jesus Christ, post-salvation. Again, I said I gave you some links to some articles, and one of them in particular I want to quote here. Nick Batzig said this, 
the means of grace are God's appointed instruments by which the Holy Spirit enables believers to receive Christ and the benefits of redemption. Again, they're the vehicles, they're instruments, they're means. Although he could have chosen to reveal Christ immediately to his people, he has determined instead to do so through certain means. God assigned the word, sacraments, that's communion and baptism, and prayer to be the foremost, but not the only means, the foremost means by which he communicates Christ and his benefits to believers. And so that is to say the means of grace are, to come back to our opening illustration, the means of grace are the transmission towers and the poles and the transformer boxes in our neighborhoods, and they deliver his grace and thus his salvation. So Paul says, by grace, by grace you have been saved. Not by Bible reading you have been saved. Not by certain prayers you have been saved. Not by serving and harvest kids you have been saved. Not by giving a generous offering you have been saved. Not by coming to church you have been saved. It's none of these things. Those are means by which God may pour out his grace to you. But they are not salvation itself. You're not earning anything. For those who were raised on the catechisms, and specifically the Westminster, question 88 says this, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer all of which are made effectual to the elect or effective for Christians, beneficial to Christians for salvation. By by using that phrase, made effectual, they're used by God to dispense His grace. They're conduits of His grace. Now, I should say at this point that it isn't necessary for us, having just looked at those two quotes, the one from Batsik and the one from the Catechism, it isn't necessary for us to limit the means of grace to the obvious ones. The obvious ones are communion, which again, we're going to observe in a few moments, or baptism or the worship uh, that we uh, did together, or looking at the Word of God together. Those are the more obvious ones, but God uses many varied means of delivering grace to us, including Something like Sabbath rest. God put a principle into the creation of one in seven rest, and we should all be observing that. Taking time apart to rest. God can use that in in our lives. That's a means of God's grace if we would obey Him in this principle of Sabbath. Friendship. God wants us to be bound together as those who know and love Christ and serve Him together. We should have close friendships. We should be in community with one another. That's why God gave us the church. We should be in deep fellowship, sharing all things in common, as Acts 2 says. That too, being part of of relationships with other passionate followers of Jesus Christ can be a conduit of grace into our lives. And those two in particular, rest and friendship, I'm going to deal with in the messages that I'm going to preach in this series. God uses those two, Sabbath, friendship, but also serving others, giving. These are conduits of His grace. As we do these things as believers, we receive even more grace from our kind and generous God. And so what I'm seeing as I work through this is that grace is easily compromised by distortions of the gospel. Thus, I feel the need to earn God's favor. And here's the turn now. Look at this. 
rather than receiving his grace by faith alone. Now, when we look chapter 2, verses 15 through 21, we hear Paul continuing to explain all of this to us. And he says in particular in, particular in verse 16, this is 2.16, he says, a person is not justified, that's the word for salvation, declared righteous. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified or saved by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. You can hear echoes of Ephesians 2, 8, 9 here. He's saying essentially the same thing because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one can work for their salvation. Now notice, this is, this is only about having believed in Christ Jesus, not works in order to be saved or justified. We must believe, we must have faith in Christ. And, and the most obvious example of this is the way a person gets saved is, is to go back to the crucifixion and to those two men that were crucified with Jesus. And the one said to him, as Jesus is dying on the cross beside him, one says to him, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That man had to have had faith, which is the evidence of things not seen, because if he was looking at Jesus, he knew that man could never save him. But he had faith in something he couldn't see. He believed Jesus could save him. So he said to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, this day you're going to be with me in paradise. Man got saved because he believed. Now, again, if there's ever an evidence that you cannot be saved by works, this is it because this man could not give an offering. He had nothing. He had been stripped and nailed to a cross and left there to die. He had nothing to give. He couldn't serve in youth ministry. He couldn't serve at the door greeting people as they came to church. He couldn't serve. He was going to die in the next few hours. He had no way of doing any works whatsoever to earn his salvation. It had to be entirely by faith alone. That example should stand for all of us. That's not just his story. That's, that's everyone. We all get saved in the exact same way, but we get tempted to believe that we can do something to earn our salvation because we're not nailed to a cross beside Jesus, because we can give offerings, because we can serve in the church, because we can read our Bible. But that is a distortion of the gospel. It must be received by faith alone. And this is good news for everyone because it's absolutely oppressive. Every other religion oppresses its followers by telling you you have to do something to earn it. And the problem with that is, is you can never quite know if you have. You can give all kinds of money and you can perform all kinds of good works and you can say all the right prayers and you can meditate at all the right times. You can make all the right pilgrimages. And at the end of the day, it still has to be more because you're still living and you're still breathing and you're not quite sure if it was enough. No other religion dares give you what it gives you 
freely. Simply by believing. This is good news for everyone. It's why we as as Christians, we all can identify so closely with Galatians 2.20, and this is my life first. It it was shared with me when I was a brand new Christian, a teenager, and the man who was discipling me came, and he opened his Bible, and he shared this verse with me, and he walked me through it to understand. He gave me a little card with this verse on it that I still have more than 40 years later. Many of you also have taken this verse as your life verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Even even if I'm doing works for Him, I'm still living by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. What's what's completely absent from Galatians 2.20, thankfully, is any talk about works. There's nothing indicating deservedness or any effort to earn anything. And even as you and I struggle against the forces of evil in the world, even as we battle temptation every single day, we seek to live holy lives, to be holy, even as our God is holy. Still, we know that it is about living by faith and not works in terms of our eternal standing before God. And I would like to say to each one of you as you're hearing my voice right now, if you're still trying to earn God's favor through what you do, stop it. Find freedom in Christ. Just stop it. And simply believe that the Son of God loved you and gave His life for you. Receive that by faith as the thief on the cross did. And we do that, notice this finally, in the power of the Spirit and not the flesh. Finally, in chapter 3, he calls out the believers in Galatia because they were giving themselves to this distortion of the gospel. They're believing these false teachers as they came through. He calls them out in a way that shows that he had some familiarity with who they were. It's a pretty direct, almost offensive way of addressing them. And he says, oh, foolish, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Who tricked you? Who gave you this line that you're believing? It was before your eyes that that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. We preached the gospel to you. So let me ask you only this, Paul says. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? How did you get what you have? Did you do a bunch of things to get it? The answer, of course, is no. And he says again, in case they missed it the first time. Remember that first time when I called you foolish? Let me say it again. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected? By the flesh. And he'll add a few lines later. And he pulls from the story of Abraham, the great patriarch of the Old Testament. And sometimes as Christians, we have this notion of the Old Testament, New Testament, and the New Testament is grace, and the Old Testament is law. 
Sometimes we mistakenly believe that the way that the Jews were saved in the Old Testament was by doing works of the law, like they were saved when they brought a, a lamb to the temple and they offered it. When they followed the feast days and the festivals, that that somehow in following the Mosaic law was the way that a Jew was saved. And that was not the way a Jew was saved. The Old Testament never teaches that. In fact, here's Paul pulling from the Old Testament, speaking about Abraham and says, Galatians 3.11, the righteous shall live by faith. Abraham was a righteous man who lived by faith. He was saved by faith, not by the law. No one was ever saved by the law, not in the Old Testament and certainly not now. The righteous shall live by faith. You and me just as much as it was true for Abraham. And so our foolish pursuit, Paul's word, not mine, our foolish pursuit of God's favor must end. And again, the means of grace do not earn you anything related to salvation. But here's, here's the setup now for the rest of the series. The means of grace do not earn you anything related to salvation, but they do create a pathway for God's continued grace in your life. That's going to translate into certain things in our lives. And so if you'll go on the journey with us over the next 10 weeks, nine more weeks after this one, all the way to Labor Day weekend, whether you're here in person or you're watching on the live stream, because we're going to get some vacation time. There's going to be some coming and going through these summer months. You're going to be away for a few weeks, but you're going to catch the service. You're going to listen to this. You're going you're to get into the message. You're going to learn about these means of grace. Because these means of grace, these conduits of God's grace, are going to turn into blessings for us. How many people want to be blessed by God? Raise your hand if you want to be blessed by God. Okay, shockingly, there's several people in the room that do not want that. I'll try again. How many people in the room want to be blessed by God? It's so generic. Just raise your hands. The means of grace are going to be the conduit through which God blesses you and is able to bless you. How many people, and maybe not everybody's going to raise their hand on this one, and that's fine, but how many people are going through a difficult season in your life right now, or you have some big decision in front of you, and the thing you need is perspective? Anybody like that? Let's do the survey. Raise your hand. God's going to use the means of grace to communicate perspective to you that you would not have any other way. Or how, how many of us, how many of us would just desire, and I can't imagine anybody wouldn't want this, how many of us would just desire, I want greater intimacy with God. I just want to know him better. How many people just want to know God better? Well, God's going to use his means of grace as a conduit of his grace into your life to draw you into a deeper, more intimate relationship with, with him. Why would, why would not everyone want that? Again, Nick Batsik in his article said, if we are to grow in grace, we must acknowledge that God has appointed certain means for that growth. We should approach these means with eager anticipation and childlike reliance on the one who adds his blessing to them. And we must rest content in a right use of them, knowing that God has promised to bless them as we use them with repentant and believing hearts. And so let's, Let's spend this summer leaning into 
these means of grace. Let's allow these means of grace to be the conduit of everything God wants to do in our lives. Amen? Amen? Everyone, every, everyone go with that? Again, I don't have another option, so this is our summer that's ahead of us right now. So let me pray for us, and then Jordan's going to come up and lead us through uh, the table. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you again so much for uh, what we've heard today from your word, Father, for the beautiful time of worship that we had. And Father, now as we go into a time around the table to remember uh, the death of our Lord, Father, thank you for all of these means of grace in our lives. And I pray, God, that over this summer as we work through this series, as we hear from uh, the other preachers who are going to be uh, coming and sharing uh, their hearts and these messages with us, Father, I pray that you use each one to change us and transform us. God, I pray that we would become increasingly knowledgeable about your grace and we would experience it in our lives in a, in a greater and greater way. And Father, do a deep work in us throughout these summer months. And thank you again for the joy of knowing you through Jesus Christ and by faith alone. We pray this in his name. Amen.